Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Good morning. It's great to be here with you, whether you're online or whether you're in the room with us today. It's just good to be together and get to worship and uh, get to celebrate a little bit. So thank you all for being here. Well, last weekend, we actually launched a capital campaign, and we're calling it the, the home campaign. And really, the idea behind it is, for six years, we've set up and torn down church in a school and met here, but we really would like to have a building of our own. And so we're kind of taking steps of faith and walking forward in that process and trying to do that. And the home campaign, the goal of it would be to provide ourselves with a permanent home where we can invite our city to come in and enjoy a deep, meaningful life with Christ alongside us. And so that's kind of the, the desire that we have. But for some of you that are new, kind of new to church, you may never have heard of this idea of a capital campaign. So I wanted to take a, take a few minutes to just explain kind of what it's going on and, and how this thing works. Uh, many of you, if you imagine uh, people that moved to Edmond, a lot of our uh, families or individuals that move into Edmond really desire to have a house. And so they, uh, they begin to work on a process of trying to find a, a way to, to buy a home. Uh, but the reality is every family's got bills and stuff you got to pay. You've got insurance and you got grocery bills and you got electric bills and you got all this stuff you have to pay. And so as the monthly stuff piles up, eventually if you want to buy a home, you've got to you've got to create a savings plan and you've got to set aside some money so that you can eventually make a down payment on a home and begin to purchase and move forward in that. Well, church families are very similar to that. Um, we as a church, uh, we've got monthly bills we have to pay. We've got staff and insurance and um, other subscriptions and stuff we've got to do. We've got gear we've got to maintain. We've got all kinds of stuff we have to do every month. And that comes out of what we call the general fund in our church. And so when you drop money in the bucket or when you write a check or when you stick... Uh, give online, that money goes into our general fund to pay kind of our monthly regular bills. Now, if we want to go get a home, what we have to do is create a separate account in order to save some money so we can go make a down payment at home. That's what a capital campaign does. And so we're calling this capital campaign our home campaign because we're really desiring to have our first home together. Now, what's different uh, between your personal finances and ours is that personal finances is usually a person or, an or a family unit that's working together on those things. But in a church, I mean, we've got a whole bunch of people that are coming together to work towards the mission of Jesus together and kind of locking arms in this thing together. And so for us, it's well, how do we together begin to save money and figure out how to do this? Now, when I, uh, the, the reality for us is that we've all got really different means. We've got different income levels. We've got different spiritual maturity levels. We've got different backgrounds, different stations of life, different seasons of life. And so uh, we're, we all have different capacities to partner with the church in terms of, in terms of the amount we give. Uh, the key thing is that we're all apart and that we all have a place, uh, uh, something that we can contribute. Now, when I throw a big number out, like $150,000, I can see it in your eyes that most of you go, man, I don't feel like I could touch that. Like I, I'm not sure how I help you with that, with that goal, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. So here's what I want to do today is I want to break that down and make it in some little smaller chunks and maybe help you see how this might actually be possible for us as a people. And so let me just show you kind of how, how this might work. If you imagine 75 people that would contribute and say, okay, I want to be a part and I want to give towards this goal, 
Uh, I've got a chart back here behind me that just kind of breaks it down and gives you some simpler numbers. And you notice that there's some people in our body that can probably write a significant check and uh, that, that would cover a, a large chunk of that. There's others that, and you may be able to do 50 or $100. And, and, and what we know is there's no pride or shame in that, that everything we have is, give, is a gift from the Lord. And our job is just to steward and manage what we have. And so as you look at that, there's, there's a, a way for a lot of different people to participate and everyone contributes to that. Now, when, I, when you look at this chart, um, it can look a little overwhelming. Look at the next slide here. And what I want to see is the, the totals that begin to come in begin to add up. And if you look at that and think of 75 people that raised their hand and said, hey, I want to be a part of this, look at the grand total that that might, that that might give. And that would give us a significant jump forward in, in terms of this process. And so I, I don't want you to feel trapped by that. Some of you look at charts and you're like, dude, you're boxing me in. Dude, you're, you're making this too mechanical. It's, I don't want you to feel that at all. But here's what I want you to see. No matter where you are, you can contribute and be a part of this campaign. You can make a significant difference. The, the heart behind this is that, we, that this is something we do together. And for me, when I, when I just my history in terms of life in, the, in, the, in Christ's church, nothing will unify and motivate and encourage and build momentum in a body than us coming together and, and attacking a challenge and trusting the Lord together to do something great. And so that's really the heart behind this is we want to see all of us come together for the uh, for the glory of God and the good of our city to go help us find a home. And so that's the desire of really what we want to do. Now, here's what I know. No mere project or vision or uh, any, any kind of pitch is going to make this happen. This is going to happen because the Lord works in each of our hearts. And somehow we come together collectively as a body and we say, yes, we feel like the Lord's leading in this way. Yes, we want to be a part. Yes, we want to see this happen. And so for that to happen, we need the Lord to work in us and we need to walk in humble obedience to the Lord. And that's the way these kinds of things happen. So here's my question for you today. Will you pray with us for our church and pray for our home? Will, will, you, will you lock arms with us over the next six weeks? And will you, and I don't mean just like a, a before the meal, like, you know, bless our food sort of a thing. But like, will you actually seek the Lord? Will you, will you pray diligently and ask him to, to bless our church with a home? That's what we want to be about. Uh, now, Here's my thing when I, when I think about this. I think it would be amazing in 2020 for a remnant of the Church of Christ to come together and lock arms and take new territory in the middle of the craziness of the world we live in. Like, wouldn't that testify to the goodness of our God if he provided that for us in this season? Can you imagine how good it would feel to, uh, to, to be able to take a step and say, man, we, we have a permanent home in our city and we did it during the middle of the craziness of our world. We trusted the Lord even when it was hard and took a step of faith and God provided and we were able to do this. And can you imagine the day when we walk into that permanent space and we open those doors and we move in and we worship and we celebrate him for all the good he's done and then we launch out a mission to our city to see people come to Christ. And that's the heart behind the mission and what we want to do. So let's pray together over the next six weeks and see how the Lord wants to direct our steps. And can I just pray for us now? Sound good? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you and your mercy and your grace would smile upon us, that you'd have favor on us, and uh, that you would continue to walk alongside us. Father, this, this idea of the church was, was your idea, not ours. Father, this is your church and not ours. Father, we are honored to get to be a part of your mission in this city and in this world. And We just ask for your, your provision. We ask that you would give us a home. We ask that we would have a place that would be a home base for our mission to the city and for that it would be a lighthouse in a dark world. Father, a place would be a hospital where people could heal. Father, a place would be a training center where people are, are equipped and built up. Father, a teaching center where people are grounded and rooted in their faith for a deep, meaningful life with you. 
Father, we pray that there would be a house of prayer and a house of worship. Father, where you are exalted and where you are at the front and center all the time. Father, we just ask that you'd that you give to us so that we can give back to you. Uh, Father, we ask that you provide a home for this church uh, and for your mission in our city. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's jump into the Word together. And uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel. So we are jumping back into our series called On the Life of David. We started the series in the spring and walked through 1 Samuel. We took a little break because this thing called COVID intercepted, it, it kind of interrupted our world. And we're coming back now. We're going to hit 2 Samuel this fall. And so we're jumping in there together. Now, when I was a kid, there was a song called Take This Job and Shove It. Any of you know that song? Yeah, yeah. Some of you, you're going to be singing it the rest of the day. I'm sorry for that. It was written by a guy named Johnny Paycheck. Has there any, ever been a better artist name than Johnny Paycheck? Uh, I know this is a shock, but that was not his original name. Like he wasn't, his mama didn't call him Johnny Paycheck. And in fact, most people think it was kind of like a, a humorous spin on Johnny Cash's name that he named himself Johnny Paycheck as this kind of heir in the country music world. But here's the, how his masterpiece went. Try better not to stand, or you better not stand in my way because I'm walking out that door. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Uh, now, I don't think it was the high poetry that made everyone like this song. Like, I'm not sure it's the lyrical quality that made everyone like this song. But when you think about this, I think the song hit a chord because uh, can we all admit that we've been in situations where we would really love to just tell someone off and think that would feel pretty good? Like, I think there's times when we'd all like to just unload our frustrations on someone. And I know we're not supposed to admit that in church, but I think that's, that's, what, that's what this song is about, and that's why people liked it, was we've all had days where we go, man, I would just like to let loose on someone because of the idiocy that's going on. In fact, it's kind of become a standard trope in comedy movies. Uh, Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase. There's a famous scene in that movie where after wanting his, already spending his Christmas bonus, waiting for it, waiting for it, his boss pulls a fast one and rips it out and he doesn't know what's going on. And so in this like 45 second tirade where he unleashes every inappropriate uh, fit of anger that he can possibly unleash, he just lets go on his boss and on this missed Christmas bonus and um, in, in, right there in front of his family. It's kind of this humorous scene. And uh, the fact is we've all been there, haven't we? And it feels great for like two minutes. And then you want to hit unwind, but you can't. Uh, any of you want to admit you know what I'm talking about? Like I'm not the only one that's done that, right? Yeah, we, we've all been there before, right? And so as you think about that today, we're going to look back at the life of David. As we look at the life of David, we're going to look at a moment where he has a chance to cut loose on someone who has been a thorn in his side for 12 years. And he could have rejoiced in the downfall of the man that's been the biggest pain um, for him in his life, and the one who's caused him the greatest grief. He could have danced on the grave of his enemy, and yet David's going to take a higher road. And so we're going to look at that today, and we're going to talk about what, what I've called the lost art of magnanimity. So I should never call something something I can't say. That's probably not a good public speaking skill, but that's the right word for what we're talking about. What does it mean to be magnanimous? I want to give a definition up here and just put it on the screen, and it tells you how to pronunciate so that you can later whenever I butchered it completely. But it's showing or suggesting a lofty or courageous spirit, showing or suggesting nobility of feeling and generosity of mind. See, in one sense, magnanimity is the ability to keep your stuff together when you feel like unloading on someone. 
But really it goes beyond that because that, that really is self-control. Self-control keeps your anger intact so that you don't, so that you don't slander or uh, abuse or, or just lash out at someone. That's, that's self-control. Magnanimity actually goes beyond self-control to, to make you actually honor the other person. So not only do you not unload on them, you actually turn it around and you bless them. You actually turn it around and do good to them. And that's what magnanimity does. And so today we're going to look at how God, our faith in God helps us live a magnanimous life, even, even when we disagree with someone, even possibly when they've harmed us. So let's get into the Word. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And while you turn there, let me just remind us, because we've been away for a couple months, kind of some of the things we've seen in the life of David. David was this uh, younger son of a large family. He was a shepherd boy, and he was called one day out of the fields, and the shepherd actually was overlooked and ignored until, uh, until the prophet asked for, is there another son? And they went and found this kind of forgotten son out in the field and brought him in. And it was predicted and prophesied that he would eventually become king of the nation of Israel. And so in that, uh, David then goes and has the famous scene of David slaying the giant Goliath. And so you have that moment. Uh, Soon after that, David, who was a singer-songwriter, gets invited into the king's court and becomes a musician uh, playing for King Saul. And then Saul becomes jealous of him because the people all rejoiced and, and almost celebrated David more than they did Saul. They said Saul had killed his thousands, David's killed his tens thousands. And so they've celebrated David. And Saul became jealous and he turned against David. In fact, he twice hurled a spear at David's head trying to take his life, uh, which you got to be a pretty rough dude to get, start hurling spears at someone in your own house. Uh, but that's what David endured. And David, Saul eventually took everything away from David. He took away his job. He took away his wife. Uh, he took away his status. He took away his position. He took away his ability to do the things he was gifted to do. Uh, took away his army. And then David spent... 12 long years on the run being hunted by Saul, running around hiding in caves and hiding out. And so to put that in perspective, because uh, I think it's easy to kind of dismiss that as Bible thing, how long have we been in this COVID situation we've had to endure? It's like six months, right? So put this in perspective, David was in hiding, running around, living in chaos for 12 years. It's 24 times longer than what we've endured. So just imagine the buildup of frustration that would take place in his heart. Imagine the, the moment then when he would hear about the news of, of King Saul's death. This one that had been the problem and the source of all of his pain and all of his frustration has now died, and David gets word of it. Imagine how he'd feel. Don't you think you'd be tempted to gloat just a minute? I mean, don't you, don't you think there'd at least be a party that'd be like, Saul, you sorry sucker. Like, you finally got what's coming to you. What was coming to you. And let's watch and see how David responds. So 2 Samuel, beginning in verse, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said, how did it go? Tell me. And he said, the people have fled from battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. So you've got this man that comes and brings this word from the battle. Uh, the nation of Israel have been engaged in war with Philistines. They've been engaged in this battle. And as they did, this man <clears throat> flees from the camp of Israel. He comes home and he tells David of what is ha- or not comes home. He comes to David and tells David of what has gone on, that many have died, especially that Saul and um, 
Jonathan have died. Now, you notice in verse 1, it says, when David returned from striking down the Amalekites, the writer here wants you to understand kind of the background. He wants to make sure that you can emotionally connect with what David's feeling, where David is in that moment. And so he's, he's pointing us back to what happened just before this in David's life. Now, three days earlier, David and his men had come home from a battle and, and as they'd gone out and kind of gone to work for the day, they came home. And what they found was their houses were burning and their cinders on the ground. Their wives and their children had been taken captive by a group of people called the Amalekites. Imagine coming home and seeing the devastation there and seeing that the people you love most on the earth are gone and they're missing and they've been taken away. That's where David was. And so they, it said they mourned from evening to, uh, until evening. Um, they were horrified. Eventually, they fled after their families, and they went and rescued their, their children and rescued their wives, and they came back home. And so they've just gotten back. They're there. They could probably still smell the charred remains of their houses being burnt. They're probably sifting through to see if there's anything that can be salvaged. I mean, I got to think their wives and children probably had PTSD after being gone for three days, held captive by an enemy. And they're, they're wrestling with all this stuff. And who is it now that shows up? Um, with news that Saul had died. It's an Amalekite. Where, who had taken their, wives, their children and wives captive and burned their houses? The Amalekites. So this guy shows up, and the writer doesn't even give us names. It was his name. He's just the Amalekite. He's making a connection he wants you to see. And this Amalekite shows up with Saul's stuff, acting sad about Saul's death. He, he bears all the outward markings of grief, right? He's got dirt on his head. His clothes are torn. He falls down before David to honor him. And yet something feels a little bit suspicious, and David's not quite sure. So let's read on in verse 5 and see, uh, see how David responds. Verse 5 says, Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he had looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered and said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord." And so this man tells us the story of what had happened. He said, well, Saul had fallen. He was, he was wounded and he was dying. And he, I just by chance, I happened to be right there and wandering around. And, uh, and Saul asked me to take care of him. And so I took care of him because I'm, that's just the kind of man I am. And then I grabbed his crown and his armlet and I ran 80 miles to bring it to you. And so this man's story um, seems to, to kind of be a little bit far-fetched, doesn't it? In, in reality, his story doesn't check out. I mean, what are, the, what are the likelihood in a battle that the king is going to be left alone? There's going to be no soldiers, no, uh, no, no armed guard, no friends of his that are going to stick around and be by his side. But just by chance, this foreigner happens to wander through and Saul's begging for his help. It's a highly unlikely scenario. And really what happens is that this guy's looking for a little payoff. And he invented the best story he could. He's like, man, if I bring the, the king's crown and the armlet, maybe I'll, I'll get a good seat, you know, when David takes over. When David's going to be the next king, and I really want to be on the winning side. I mean, we all want to be on the winning side, right? I mean, none of us want to be, be one of the losers. So he's like, man, if David's going to be the next king, I'm going to go try to get myself in a really good position. So I'm on the winning team when this thing, when this thing kind of settles and the dust settles a little bit. Now, the fact is for David, this could have been an incredible opportunity, Right? For David, he had been, it had been prophesied that he would eventually be king. And now David's got the king's 
armband that goes on his upper arm and he's got a crown and he easily could march in town and go, man, my day is finally here. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get in the king's palace. I'm going to take a nice warm bath. I'm going to have a big meal and I'm going to start living it up and I'm going to get to rule and I'm going to finally get to do all the things that I want to do. And surely the, the king's palace would be a better place if David were king, right? And so David could easily start taking advantage of this situation. Now, let's look and see what David's going to do and how he's going to respond to this. Verse 11 it says, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them so that all the men who were, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Does David's response surprise you? See, David's first instincts to mourn. It says he's sad for Saul and he mourns for Saul. He's sad for Jonathan. He's sad for uh, the people of God and for, for the people of Israel. David has got a perspective that's a little bit different than maybe what we think. What he sees first is not his own opportunity for retribution, not his own opportunity for power or position. What he sees first is the brokenness and devastation of his people. He sees the suffering of those around him. And it says he mourned and he wept and he fasted over, over it all. That's magnanimity. That's a look at what we mean by being magnanimous. He didn't gloat. He didn't breathe a sigh of relief. He didn't go, well, Saul, man, you earned everything you got. Eye for an eye, to, you know, you, you, get, you get now to suffer for all the things you did. I mean, he didn't say, well, I'm going to get mine now. Instead, he mourned. He was sorrowful for everything that he saw. Uh, in this passage, I think we see a clue for why he could be so magnanimous in a moment like this. Notice what it says in that this is more, more than seeing this as a political or military problem, he saw that this was a spiritual problem. And so as he looks at this, he says he was sad for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. You see, Israel was God's chosen people. They were the people that represented the Lord on the earth. They were the ones that, that, that stood before all the nations and proclaimed the goodness of God. And they were in utter devastation. They were outcasts and they were being ridiculed. And so as you think about this, David what you see is that David was committed to a mission that was bigger than his own preferences and bigger than his own position. He was committed to the mission of, the, of God in the world. And so he, he knew that the people of God were being mocked by their enemies right now. So it was sad that Saul had died. It was sad that Jonathan had died. It was even more sad that the Lord had been dishonored by their behavior and by the situation. And now this Amalekite shows up and is trying to profit off the downfall of the Lord's people and, and the people of Israel. Let's go to verse 13. Verse 13 says, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he said, I am a son of a sojourner in Amalekite. A sojourner was someone that lived in the, play, in, in the area of Israel who was a foreigner who was allowed to live there, but was assumed that he would embrace the, the values and the beliefs of Israel. And so he should have known better. He should have known the expectation of how the king, of who the king was and how the king was to be, to be treated and that to, to, to make an affront to Israel's king was to make an, an affront or a rejection of Israel's God. And so this was a guy who had been around a long time. And so it says, um, he says, I was a, uh, I'm a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David is going to, uh, going to act in, in, uh, in uh, kind of judgment against this guy. And so you're going to see him step out. Now, 
You notice what it says, there's a, the heart of the issue is, is, how is it you were not afraid to put out your head, your hand against the Lord's anointed? Meaning, the Lord's anointed was the one that, that, that God had made king, the one that God had put on the throne. And this is the one that was intended that once Israel had a king, he was the one that represented God to the people. And so he was the, kind of at the forefront of the mission of God in the world, was this king. And he says, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand against, to destroy him? See, David had a deep conviction that you should never act against what God has done, that you never, should never intercede in that. It's, it's a really simple act of faith. David had lived by this principle for 12 long years, hadn't he? Um, I will not raise my fist against or harm the, the Lord's anointed. Imagine how easy it would have been to justify his killing Saul. Like, I, I should not act against, against the Lord's anointed, you know, unless he's a pain in my backside, then maybe I can, Right? Like, I should not act against the Lord's anointed unless he's a little bit crazy or off. Like, I should not act against the Lord's anointed unless he starts hurling spears at me. Um, I should not act against the Lord's anointed unless he's corrupt. Like, all these things could have been justifications for David for years and years and years that he could have easily justified acting to Saul. In fact, his men and his culture were encouraging him to do so. They're like, dude, this guy's after you. Just take him out. Like, you can act against this guy, but for David, he refused to bend the command of God to the moment he was in. And can you remember what it was like when you were young and you read the Bible? And maybe you just took it at face value? And you just said, well, if God said that, I guess that's what that means. Or maybe you're new to your faith, and, and you, you read the Bible with fresh eyes, and you read the words of Jesus, and then they jumped off the page at you, and you looked at him and went, man, if Jesus says love your enemies, I guess I have to figure out how to love my enemies. And you, you didn't try to do kind of mental gymnastics around it and justify it. And I think a lot of us started that way, but now we've kind of gotten smart enough to explain it all away. Well, I'm not really sure that's what the Bible means. I'm not sure that, um, that we should really act that way. I mean, the Bible says we shouldn't do so-and-so, but what it really means is, and we begin to try to nuance our way around the simple commands of what Jesus gave and what is in the Word of God. Sure, love your, under, love your enemies under optimal conditions, on your own terms, as long as you're not online, and as long as it's not an election year. Then, yes, you should love your enemies. But if any of those things are true, then you can kind of skip by that, right? Like, we find ways to justify all kinds of stuff that we do that you look in the Bible and it's like, wow, that looked really clear. But we try to find ways to backpedal out of some of that. And David, it's interesting, still took God seriously and believed that he meant what he said. So David said, to, to not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed meant what? You don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. He didn't try to dance around it. Now David had waited more than 12 years to be free from Saul's anger and torment. And through it all, David had trusted the Lord. He'd waited on the Lord. He'd refused to expedite his own rise in power by acting in any way that would dishonor the Lord. Imagine fleeing from David, Saul for years, hiding out in caves. And at least twice we know he had opportunities to kill Saul and it would have been easy for him. He could have done it just like that. And yet he, said, he stayed his hand and said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointing because God said so. Friends, this is, um, this is an important thing for us to understand, I think, in this time. David had learned to live by faith in God, and he wasn't going to go back on it now. So now this Amalekite comes up, and he's got an opportunity and thinks, well, maybe David needs my help, and so I'll try to help him along. And it's such a good question David asks, isn't it? How is it you are not afraid? Because it's so easy for us to live in our world and just to run and act and do without stopping to consider the consequences of, does this honor the Lord? See, there's a, there's a healthy fear of the Lord. There's a healthy God-honoring fear that is intended to protect us from trouble. 
And it's a question I think we need to ask ourselves sometimes is, how was I not afraid to sin against the Lord? How was I not afraid to dishonor the Lord in, in my actions? I read a story this week of a Polish prince, and it was said that he carried around a picture in a, in a pocket that he kept over his heart all the time, and he would pull it out occasionally, and he would look at that photo and, in his pocket, and he'd say, let me do nothing to dishonor so, uh, so, uh, so, such, such a good father. Let me do nothing unbecoming that would dishonor my father. And he'd look at the picture of his father, and that would try to stay his course to make him stay and do the right thing. Friends, that's the way we need to live. Are you, are you living with Christ near your heart, looking to him regularly and saying, let me do nothing to dishonor my king today? Let me do nothing to bring uh, to, that would be unbecoming of my relationship with him. Now, in the end, David has to deal with this Amalekite man, and he does. He, um, he, he inquires about this guy's background, finds out, I mean, this guy's been around a long time. He knew better. This guy was acting in, in a subversive way, and so David uh, goes and executes him and says, your blood's on your own head, bro. Like, you, you've done the wrong thing. Friends, we don't, we don't trifle with the Lord, and we don't trifle with the Lord's commands. We submit to them. That's, that's where David was. Verse 17 is an interesting one. It says that, And David lamented with a, with a lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said that it should be taught to all the people of Judah. So he, he, a lament is a, it's a poem or a song that you would write that sort of is intended to help you process grief. Um, and, and it's kind of meant to be, you know, you have this emotional outburst whenever you experience deep grief. And it's meant to kind of just be this reflection process of you mentally dealing with the emotions of your grief and coming to it. And David writes a, uh, a lament for Saul and for Jonathan. And the rest of this chapter is a song that David wrote in honor of the death of Saul and Jonathan. This guy who had been the biggest problem in his life, and he, when he died, David stopped and he honored him by writing a song. And then he commanded all the people to, to memorize this song and to know it and to sing it in honor of Saul and in honor of his son, Jonathan. See, what I see in this is that that's what a magnanimous person does. That it takes the one who had wounded him and it absorbs that and then blesses. That, that when others suffered, David suffered with him, even those who had hurt him in his past. It sounds a little bit like Jesus, doesn't it? Someone who had done no wrong and yet absorbed the pain of others because of the wrongs which they had done and offered blessing and goodness to them. The sinless suffered for the sinful. That's the grace of God. And David commanded all the nation to remember and to rejoice and to celebrate um, what had happened in the people, or, or to jo in Jonathan and, and, and Saul's life. David even commanded them all to learn the song. Let me just read a section of this. It says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the, Dan the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David is, and we're not going to unpack all this, we're not going to take time to do that. It's worth reading, though, and spending some time to see the way in which his magnanimity caused him to honor Saul and caused him to honor Jonathan. But I just want to point out one thing. David, for David, this was a spiritual issue. And so when he says, when, he, when he's coming to this, he knows that God's enemies are going to rejoice, that there's a whole lot of trash talking going on in Philistia and, and, and Amalek, with the Amalekites and with those nations that are around there because Israel's fallen. And so he knows that this is happening and every big screen TV in Gath is going to be projecting the images of Saul's body and Jonathan's body dangling off the wall and they're going to be mocking them. And so he says, tell it not in Gath, meaning 
do not let them proclaim the downfall of, God, of, the Israel, of Israelites and of the people of God. And now for more reasons than I can really explain today, this whole thing is just a disgrace for the people of God. God had promised this would not be what happened if they walked with him and if they trusted him. As the king went, so went the people of God. He represented God to the world, and David hated that the world was going to be mocking the God of Saul and the God of Israel. And in this song, David honors them both, but whereas Saul had harmed David his whole life, Jonathan actually been a blessing to David his entire life. And so in the middle of their life, Jonathan had understood that David, David was chosen by God as king, and he had actually accepted God's plan. So Jonathan, this one who had seemed as the son of Saul to be the next in line for the throne, actually willingly sacrificed and set aside his own position and said, no, David, I know God has said that you're going to be the king. And so Jonathan one time actually said to David, you will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. I mean, there's incredible humility in that, isn't there? To forego the position and the power and everything that you could have because of what God had said. But for Jonathan, when God spoke, that settled it. When God told him what to do, he knew what to do, and so he did. And that was his approach to all of the kingdom. He said, I trust the Lord, so I'm willing to take a back seat. I'm willing to be second. Now, the good news for us is that Jonathan had to take a back seat to first Saul, who was, who was not a good king, but then was willing to take a back seat even to David, who was a good king. We don't have to take a back seat to Saul or a back seat to David. We just have to take a back seat to Jesus. We know a better king. We know a king who is better than Saul. We know a king who is better than David. In fact, we know a king who's descended from David. We know a king who didn't chase people down in order to harm them, but got on his knees in order to wash their feet and bless them. We know a king who didn't chase people down in order to willingly bring them difficulty, but we know a king who willingly laid down his life. We know a king who didn't take his own life in suicide as Saul did, but we know a king who willingly allowed his life to be taken from him upon a cross in order to make a way for us to be reunited to him forever. And so we have a, we have a much easier situation here. We just have to be second to Jesus, who's a good king and has our best interest in mind all the time. But you only ever know Jesus is king if you learn to take God at his word. You've got to be like Jonathan and say, you will be my king and I will be second. I'll take a back seat to you. So friends, how do we apply this lesson? What does it look like for you and me to live with magnanimity? How do we model kind of what David has done? And it takes a lot to swallow your pride and honor someone else. David had suffered at Saul, much of Saul's hands to an extent that it's almost incomprehensible that he could turn around and honor Saul. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine what that would be like in real life, Right? To have suffered at someone's hands for 12 years and then turn around and honor them. Only deep faith in God would really explain such a thing. But David wrestled with the internal uh, turmoil of his heart. He, he maintained his integrity. And then he turned around and offered bless. The reason offered to, to bless Saul. And the reason was honoring God was his first priority. And if honoring God was, was the first priority on his list, then everything else in his life fell out under that. And that made sense of the time in which he was. Now, friends, there was no clear explanation. Like, no one told David he had to do this in this moment, right? I mean, imagine, imagine the emotion of that moment for David, a moment where you, you'd come home and your house was burned and your wife and kids were gone and you went out and fought for them and you brought them home and you came back and just in that moment, this guy shows up and says, man, your best bud Jonathan's been killed. His dad, Saul, who's been this big problem for you your whole life has been killed and the people of God are devastated and you're in this moment and this guy comes to you and tells you all of this news and you've got to act in that. 
There was no clear verse of Scripture. Like David couldn't look and go, oh, here's the game plan for what to do in that, in that scenario. He had to use wisdom in order to figure out what to do. Now, friends, here's kind of where I want us to, what I want us to talk about today, kind of in terms of application. Some decisions are really simple for us to make, aren't they? Like, there's simple decisions that we just need a little bit of knowledge to make. Like, don't put your hand in fire because it's going to hurt. Like, that's a little bit of knowledge tells you what to do in that situation. You do maybe do it once, and you go, that's dumb. I shouldn't do that again. Don't drink rack poison. Like, it's going to kill you. Like, so those are pretty simple decisions, right? So that's in a category we might call knowledge. There's another category you might, that fits under knowledge that is more about our moral code. And so moral codes really are more about just following the rules. And they're, they're generally pretty easy to understand too, right? Do not steal. Any of you need deep explanation on that deal? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Like those are pretty simple, clear commands of Scripture. And th- those are things that we obviously need to follow. But there's this other biblical category when you look at, at the Scriptures called wisdom. And wisdom tells us what to do in the other 80% of the decisions that we make that don't fit into those really simple, clear categories. Life doesn't always work out in this super clear way. Like, I can't find a verse that tells me who you should marry. I can't find a verse that tells you whether you should quit a job or take a new job. I, I can't find verses on some of these things. And David couldn't have found a verse in the middle of this moment to know how is it I unify the nation and bring the people together and work through this situation in the middle of, in the middle of a crisis. And so he needed to practice wisdom. And I believe that one of the ways that, that the church has to honor God in 2020 is we've got to become a wiser people. We're going to have to learn how to, how, to, how to live with some wisdom and, and walk through this day. There's no day that I've ever endured that's been quite like the one we're living in right now. And, uh, but the fact is, a wise man or woman will know how to make the right choice when no clear commands or rules are telling us exactly what to do. That's the life of wisdom that Scripture calls us to. We need to learn how to behave magnanimously in these days. And there's, there's never been a time like this in my life where people are more at each other's throats, where things are nastier and things are more difficult, and things are more confusing in a lot of ways. And somehow the people of God have got to learn to do what David did. They've got to learn to walk with wisdom and be magnanimous in the middle of the moment. So friends, as we think about this, it's impossible to sort out all that's coming at us. It's impossible for us to please every party. It's impossible for us to, to, know the, to, to get the outcome of everything we want but it is possible for us to trust the Lord. And it is possible for us to honor the Lord in the way in which we interact. Philippians 4.5 says this, says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. And isn't that just a simple but profound statement? Let everyone see how reasonable you are. Why? Because the Lord's at hand. God sees. God's here. God knows. David lived with a sense that God knows what I am, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor the Lord because the Lord told me what to do in the situation, and that's all I know what to do. And so I'm going to choose to act in a reasonable manner. Friends, the Lord's by your side. He sees your struggle. He will strengthen you for today, but we have to submit to his leadership, and we have to trust that his way is best. And so we honor him and act reasonably in front of others. Now, I'm, I'm grieved over what I see, often, honestly, in the church. Like the Christian church is a mess, but I love her. Like, I love Jesus' church, but we're, we're a train wreck. And we need the grace of God to come in and do something in us so that we look different than the world. 
And one of the things we need to do, we need to do is we need to make us a magnanimous people who take those we disagree with and we still bless, who love those that even may lead us in a way we don't agree with. J.I. Packer said this about her struggle. Man's mind becomes free only when its thoughts are brought into captivity to Christ and his word. Man's mind only becomes free when it's held captive. You see the, the strangeness of the work in which we do? I mean, when Jesus has us, when he owns us, when we're held captive to him and to his word, it, it actually frees us to do what we ought to do. He says, until then, it's at the mercy of, meaning our minds, our minds are at the mercy of sinful prejudice and dishonest mental habits within. Our minds, there's sin within us that, that, that binds us in an unhealthy way. And that's within. And of popular opinion, organized propaganda, and unquestioned commonplaces without. I mean, we, we cave in to stuff, to the sin within us. We cave into a sinful world without us, apart from the captivity to Jesus and his word. So we've got to learn to trust him. It's only being held captive by Christ that we'll ever be free to love those with whom we disagree and love those even who have done us harm and who we think may lead us astray. It will require that we give our attention more to Christ and his word than we give our attention to the crises of the world. That's why Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, can I encourage you to stirring this season of craziness? And let's think about the good stuff. Let's not, let's not fill our minds over and over and over with crisis. But let's fill our minds with Christ. Let's run to him and help be held captive by him. Let me close with this. I just was thinking this week, one day, one day when all this is over, we're going to look Jesus in the eye. We're going to have an account for all that we've done. And we're going to have a chance to stand before him. And I just think about so much of what's going on right now, of how trivial and foolish the things that we have held on to and the arguments that we've fought and the, the little battles that we've waged are going to feel when we look in the eyes of the risen Christ. When we see the holy, beautiful, good, glorious Jesus standing unfettered by all the junk of this world in all of his majesty, reigning over, uh, reigning over all in his sovereign goodness and grace. I just think that divine beauty is so magnificent, we won't even be able to comprehend it. And I think so many of the things that I mean, we wrapped our hearts around will look so trivial and foolish that we would trade all the arguments and fights for one glimpse of joy in our Savior's eye and one opportunity when he would say, well done, friend. Well done, tired one. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, my brother. Enter into your rest. That's the day we, that's the day we live for. Let's fill our mind with that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would never lose sight of Christ's beauty and Christ's goodness. Father, would you help us to rest in it even now? Father, would you make us a magnanimous people? People who bless and do not curse. People who love well. People who love like Jesus. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.